This is the Mormon Expression Podcast. Find us on the web at mormonexpression.com. Okay, welcome back. In uh, 2005, John DeLynn started a podcast known as Mormon Stories, which explored some issues of faith and identity in the Mormon Church. The podcast and John's subsequent work has remained an influential piece of Internet Mormonism. DeLynn has continued his Internet work with Mormon Matters and his most recent project, StayLDS.com. John's activity in the Mormon universe is not limited to the Internet. Besides being an active member and serving in callings, he's also served on the Sunstone Board as an executive director of the Sunstone Education Foundation. John recently completed his M- MS in Instructional Technology from Utah State University and currently works as the director of MIT's OpenCourseWare Consortium. Welcome to the podcast. We're also joined by two of our regulars, George. Hi, everybody. And Tom. Hey, what's up, guys? Well, once again, thanks, John. You are the, um, in, in my mind, when I first heard one of your podcasts uh, all those years ago, that's when I first decided that I wanted to do it. So maybe in a real way, you're the inspiration for what we're doing today. Well, shucks, thanks. And I have to say, I've listened to every one of your episodes, and I've really been enjoying uh, enjoying them. So uh, thanks for what you're doing. It's, I've, I've always uh, wished that more people would, would pod, and I don't know why it's taken so long for something to get up and running, but I'm really grateful you guys are doing it. Well, it's been fun so far, and um, last week, um, well, I guess it would have been two weeks ago now, uh, George and Tom, they did theirs, and I'm, I'm, I wasn't involved in that one at all, and I'm really pleased with the way that came out. So maybe we'll take this opportunity to extend the open invitation to the world to report, record their podcast, and I'll do my part to help them get out there, even if we have to use uh, Mormon expression to publish it. Okay, John, um, I guess one of the main things um, that I'm interested in, I, you know, I've, and we'll, we'll post the links out there. It's interesting to listen to your stuff and then read the, the comments you've had, especially as you, you discontinued the project. I guess the, where I most want to talk to about today is kind of the aftermath. I mean, that sounds ominous, but now that you've, you've been through it and, and you've done the conversations, they were obviously very meaningful to a lot of people. Kind of what, what, what that's done to you. How has that changed you? Wow. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? <laughs> well, um, I guess uh, it um, it's introduced me to over a thousand pretty amazing uh, people. I mean, to this day, I still have phone calls or lunches with between one and three people all over the world who um, are struggling uh, and need to talk. You know, I've, I've counseled with people about divorce and eating disorders and depression and pretty much any city I go, I can contact former listeners and they'll pick me up at the airport and let me stay in their home. Having never met me face to face. Um, I have so many dear, dear friends. I can't even count them all or keep track of them all, but that's been probably the biggest blessing is just the amazing people I've been able to um, become friends with and, and to play a small part in their lives. Um, but but secondly, it was an important processing for me because when I started Mormon Stories, I did it really idealistically. I had just got done reading a bunch of books by Lowell Bennion and Eugene England and T. Edgar Lyon and all these guys who had sort of steeped themselves in 
true Mormon history and somehow emerged on the other end with their testimonies intact. So when I started Mormon Stories, it was with the intent to sort of inoculate everyone and and make it so uh, the, their testimonies could never be threatened. Um, but I quickly realized maybe a year into it that simply by exposing people to the tougher issues and quests, I was in some instances likely going to be, if not introducing them to the complexities, but maybe even accelerating their disaffection from the church. And, um, and simultaneous to that, I started experiencing my own disaffection from the church. Um, and that's, that's the phase where I started interviewing people like Grant Palmer and, and, uh, you know, Paul Toscano and others. And that sort of culminated in my own uh, sort of going inactive and kind of taking my family with me for, I don't know, probably a full year. Not fully inactive, but maybe going once a month for just an hour and the rest of the time just sort of uh, trying to, to see if we could pull ourselves out. And uh, I guess what what's been interesting as a culminating sort of thing is that we ended up all coming back to the church and I ended up getting rid of something which, which disturbed me for probably 18 years, which was my, my annoyance at um, uninformed comments in church or assertions about exclusive truth or authority. Uh, I, th- those things used to continuously grate on my nerves and I, I wondered whether I would ever get to the point where I could sit in three hours of church and and not feel like it was fingernails scratching up against a chalkboard. And I guess the final thing that's come out of this whole journey is not only am I um, attending church again, but I'm, I've found a way to no longer be annoyed by those absolute truth claims and uninformed assertions about, you know, sort of whitewashed church history and that's been really neat, uh, and it's been a total assist to me. So do you, do you feel you've kind of passed through and come out on the other side, and you've, you've found peace again? Totally. But I don't think that it's a, a linear journey. I think there's a lot of people who find peace without coming back to the church. I don't think coming back to the church is necessarily required to find peace and spirituality and, and fulfillment, but... But for me, coming back to the church um, was how I felt whole again. You know, this this is interesting because I followed your your podcast, John, um, and I I hate to admit I did I have listened to all of them. So, oh, um, yeah, no, it was it was brutal. But I'm I'll, sorry I'll, for you. No, I enjoyed them. I really did. I think one of the things that. Uh, while I'm listening to him and I'm kind of going through my own uh, crisis of faith, I'm kind of trying to reevaluate my own belief systems. I, I have to admit, I, I was actually kind of concerned about where you were and and how how you could have done the things you did or talked to the people you could and how you could reorganize your thoughts. And I thought that the advice that you would have to help people stay in the faith or or even help people try to slowly exit the church or wherever they ended up going, I thought that was 
interesting. And, and when everything stopped and when you had stopped Mormon stories and it seemed like it was kind of abrupt, um, there was people like me and a few people that I talked about that was actually very concerned about you and what had happened. So, Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for that. Did, did you, uh, was it, was it a, I mean, I obviously it was a big decision to all of a sudden stop, but have you had any thoughts since you've stopped to maybe continue on or do a few others or? Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, you know, some will be good, happy to hear this and, and most will probably not, but I am, I am considering doing a series on LDS members who have been through the crisis of faith, who are fully aware of all the history, but who have come back on the other end, not only active again, but content in their membership. And that, you know, part of what I think made Mormon stories attractive to many was that it was always a little bit edgy. It was always a little bit controversial. It was always a little bit um, sort of on the, you know, uh, just a little bit uh, flippant or harsh or whatever. Um, in terms of the topics that we covered, a little bit cavalier, the topics we covered and the people that we interviewed. So some are going to maybe view that series if I'm able to pull it off as a yawner. But um, I, I am interested in, in interviewing a series of people just to see how others have have found a way to journey back uh, into full fellowship and contentment. Um, but that's uh, that's about um, all I've planned right now. Hey, John, just uh, on the, the past ones, what was your favorite? Do you have it? Can you put your finger on a favorite interview that you did? No, there's just so many ones that I loved. Um, I... Uh, just today, I, I listened to the Stages of Faith podcast with uh, Dan Witherspoon and Tom Kimball, and I think those guys were absolutely brilliant. And I just, you know, recently I've been having some uh, heated discussions with some folks on the post Mormon board who consider my approach to reactivity and the Stalias approach to be disingenuous, and, and they call me a liar, and they call me deceitful, and they call me all these really nasty things. Um, and I just go back and listen to Dan and Tom talk about how they went through their dark nights of the soul and how they were candid with their bishopric members about it and how they worked through it to find, uh, a, a constructive conclusion to their, to their disaffection that they culminated in activity. I think that it's just a fascinating podcast. And I think that, that, James Fowler's Stages of Faith, they're not perfect. But I think that it's one of the most important things we should consider because whether or not you end up in or out of the church, I really do aspire for everyone to reach higher levels of enlightenment and even spirituality. And Fowler maps out um, a way for us to do that and, and ties it to just see people who have done it in the past. This this journey we're on of of disillusionment and disaffection from Mormonism is so not a Mormon journey. It's a religious journey. And Judaism's been through it and and Catholicism's been through it. And we're we're absolutely late to the game. And so um so I think James Fowler is someone that we would all do well to understand. Not so we'll all come back to the church. 
but so we won't stop in what he calls stage four in the stages of bitterness and anger and resentment and frustration and we'll seek to to reassemble things in a way that lead to uh, contentment and peace and joy and patience and all those virtues that can be Christ-like or Buddha-like or pick your favorite enlightened atheist, you know. Uh. So Sages of Faith was one. I love the Richard Bushman interview just because he's the first kind of rock star that I was able to interview. I think Paul Toscano was an absolute whirlwind of, of intellect and uh, passion. Um, I loved interviewing Ann Wilde, the polygamist. Uh, you know, it, sitting down in the home of a of an active believing fundamentalist who was also extremely witty and thoughtful and intelligent, who's lived uh, the principle, was just so <laughs> it was just so mind blowing. And I'm friends with uh, her to this day. Um, those are some of my favorites, but I could go on and on. <laughs> What about some that you regret? Were there any of them that you're kind of like, oh, I shouldn't have done that? Like maybe even uh, where you kind of exposed yourself a little bit or maybe the one with Hiram? Hiram was a real risk right from the very start because um, Greg Prince, who, who, who I did my first interview with Greg Prince, and Greg Prince is fascinating because he's, you know, been a chair of dialogue and he's been in a new, new Mormon history for some time. Um He's carefully managed his scholarship such that he could um, publish some things that to some were, you know, could be viewed as quite disturbing or controversial. But he did it in a way to where he could still sell his books through through Deseret Book and maintain ties to general authorities and maintain his credibility. And he he warned me at the very beginning. He said, don't interview an ex-Mormon. Be very careful how you manage your, uh, you know, your entrance into this space because you'll, you, you can erode your credibility. And once you've done that, you, you really shoot yourself in the foot. And to some degree, he is absolutely right. Because of the decisions I made early on, I sort of immediately ostracized myself from, from the mainstream blogger knackle, from the, the bloggers on Times and Sins and by Common Consent. They always sort of viewed me as radioactive, a lot of them, not all of them. They delisted me several times from, you know, <laughs> ldsblogs.org. Uh, you know, whenever, you know, interesting things would happen, they would conscientiously avoid uh, giving me any publicity. And, you know, it was just sort of a – and I quickly became sort of affiliated with the disaffected Mormon underground, even though I was trying to help people stay in the church. And – and that was a weird sort of paradox, um, given where my heart was at the time. And so I guess I guess I could have managed um, my decisions better. But, you know, I um, it's strange to see the blogger knuckle now sort of uh, turn to all the topics and the audiences that, that I was addressing early on. I'm not saying that I led them to that, but... I think I think it, in reality, there's very little difference between the conversations they're having now, um, and even and, and the ones that I was trying to have back then. So in some ways, they were just being really cautious, and they were able to stay in the mainstream by moving more slowly. And I sort of um, was a little bit excluded from the mainstream by moving too quickly. Uh, but I also 
I'm not really ashamed of that because it, it was an effort from the heart. I, I didn't believe in pulling punches. I didn't believe in um, trying to hide things. And uh, I felt like if I, if I came from the heart, it was asking sincere questions and tried to moderate a middle ground that, that somehow in the end truth, truth would win out. And I think I've had over 20,000, probably 30 to 40,000 listeners to Mormon stories since, since I released it. Um, and I think I've reached a whole audience that, that the blogger knuckle probably still has yet to reach. So it's, I'm ambivalent about it. I, I, everyone always loves to be accepted by everybody. And in some ways I put myself in the position of, of being in the middle of the road where I get sort of hit by both, both, both lanes on the freeway. But, um, it's been such an amazing ride. I guess I can't really, um, regret any of it. Well, and, and to what you're saying, your interview with Hiram. Now, Hiram's a friend of mine, and he's been on an interesting journey since then, but that's a topic for another day. But your interview with Hiram probably, um, probably gave you credibility to people that you could reach, you know, who were in serious doubt. It showed that you weren't just going to tow the party line. So, so I think on the flip side, it probably did much for some of the, the people you were actually aiming at. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'd love, to, I'd love to catch up with Hiram. It's been a long time. But, um, but yeah, I, I do feel like, um, I, I, my heart is still very much with disaffected Mormons. I, I mean, if you were to ask me if I were able to have a three hour dinner, would I rather have a three hour dinner with the average true believing Mormon or with the average disaffected Mormon? I think it, it, it probably wouldn't even be a question just because that's where my heart is. I, I love these people. I empathize with these people. I've, I've been one of these people and I, every day my heart goes out to the divorce, the depression, the ostracization, um, and the alienation that comes from either having to live a lie or live in secret or feel ashamed or alone for, for simply seeking honesty and truth. And I think it's just a great tr- tragedy. And so I'm, I'm proud to have been affiliated and to have tried to build bridges and that screencast I did called how to stay in the church, uh, uh, no, no, called white people leave the church and how we can help. Um, you know, I, I've left that up sort of a great personal peril because I just have to think that at some point somebody's going to feel like that's just too dangerous of a, of an entity to sort of leave up there. But until there's something else out there, trying to bridge the gap. And I really know of nothing. Apologetics do not try and help true believing Mormons understand disaffected Mormons better. None of the church materials do. And a lot of this, a lot of this sort of blogger knuckle stuff just tries to skirt the issue, you know, however they choose to skirt it. And, and, and so much of the disaffected stuff is just scorched earth. And so, um, I'm proud to be this bridge, although it's really painful because these people that I really try and help with these bridges, I feel like in many ways they've turned against me and view me as as the worst of all possible parties because at least the true believers are ignorant and at least the apologists aren't duplicitous, but they view me as 
disingenuous and is a is a turncoat and all sorts of horrible names they call me and it, it hurts my feelings but I you know I'm okay but it's it's been a weird ride to try and help help these people and to feel so summarily um, chastised although I know not everybody feels that way and I also know that in many ways I've brought this on myself at times by being a little bit careless in the labels I use and in the ways I've tried to describe them. So, I, I so part John, of I would have a question for you about that, though. Um, I understand, and we had a discussion about this a couple weeks ago um, on the podcast about labels and what some of the labels mean. And you just talked about some of the labels that people have given you. What what label would you give yourself today? Are you a TBM? Are you a NOM? Are you part of the DMU, are you are a new category or a new label, or would you go um, the route that says you don't want to be labeled as anything? Where where are you at? Yeah, I, I do think labels are labels do us all a disservice. Um, so I'm definitely I definitely wouldn't characterize myself as a TBM, not not by a long shot. Um, I definitely don't consider myself disaffected because I'm very happy in the church and I love the church. And I, my goal is to see the church grow and progress and to see more health and vitality within the church. I don't like NOM partly because it, in spite of the good intentions, I see NOM as a, as, um, I don't know. I, I, I love NOM and I love the people at NOM, but I, Flack and, and Nam and some of those other sites sort of just all bleed together for me these days. And, and, um, and, you know, so I don't know that any of those labels really fit. I, I guess the way I'll just ex- characterize myself is I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the LDS church. I consider myself a believer, but not necessarily in all the doctrine or in all the theology. Um, I, uh, I, um, I'm aspiring towards Fowler's stage five, which is, um, sort of a reapproaching of the faith, appreciating new, appreciating, um, metaphors and the metaphorical value and the symbolic value, appreciating the community. But it would be incomplete to say that my, my affiliation is purely social or practical or, um, you know, uh, fear based out of what would happen if I leave. I really do first and foremost see the LDS church as my spiritual home. I've tried Unitarian. I've tried Episcopalian. I've flirted with the community of Christ. I've studied Reformed Judaism. And, um, none of those places just ever felt like spiritual home for me, even though, um, I, I think they're beautiful traditions and I think they're full of amazingly spiritual people. Uh, and I think I know a lot of amazingly spiritual atheists, but, but for me, um, spirituality is at the root of my return to the church. I have had profound spiritual experiences in the church. Um, I, I am spiritually fed when I go. Um, uh, the way that I, I, uh, interpret some of the doctrines and the theology and the symbols are definitely non-traditional, but, one of the areas where I disagree most with a lot of um, these people at postmormon.org and other places is that I I really do think that 60% of the church um, sort of uh, 
fits in the category of um, what I would call a cafeteria or a buffet Mormon. I mean, you just start off the bat, 70% of the church is inactive. You know, it, let's just say most favorably, 60% of the church is completely inactive. Probably 20 to 30% of those don't even consider themselves LDS. And then of the 30 to 40% that are, maybe 30% of those are full tithe paying um, active believing members. So that other 60% of active members clearly at a minimum aren't following all the commandments of the church. And without fail, whenever I've interviewed these people privately, if I push on things like the 132nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants and polygamy or, you know, blacks in the priesthood or, you know, um, the one and only true church sort of franchise concept. Almost everyone I've ever interviewed in private is willing to confess at the end of the day, you know what, it's the best I've found and I'm going with it. And if I'm wrong, you know, I think I will have lived a better life for it. And, and so I really feel like I'm in the mainstream of the church. It's just that I have a probably a little bit more maybe a lot more knowledge than the average member about the church history and the disturbing things. And probably my interpretation of the symbols and of the doctrine are a bit um, less literal, probably a lot less literal than a lot of the average members. But I still see them as in the same category of practical cafeteria type um, members as, as I am. That's a horribly how long response. You, how much do you think your location um, in relationship to the Wasatch Front in northern Utah, how much has that influenced this, if any? Um, because I can imagine that it's much easier to accept the church as your cultural and uh, spiritual source, even though you, you say it's, it, it wasn't made on social decisions. The church is just huge where you live. Yeah. Well, uh, I've talked, you know, like I said, I've counseled with over a thousand um, disaffected Mormons over the past four years, and that number is actually not uh, an exaggeration. And I've, I've with enough of them to know that the number one reason why I'm still active, first and foremost, is because I'm a sixth-generation um, pioneer blood Mormon, and it's easier for folks like us to 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 find reasons to stay on average than it is, for example, for a convert. The second reason I'm I'm still in the church is because I have interpreted my um, experiences with the church in a very favorable light. Um, the church has been extremely powerful and meaning, meaningful to me at very important moments throughout my life. I've led an incredibly blessed life, and um, I, I sort of credit the church with having brought me an incredible amount of joy and prosperity. Um, and... Uh, so I, if I were to leave the church, it wouldn't be because I, I hated it. It would be in spite of my love for it. And that's a very different situation than people who have been abused by ecclesiastical leaders or by their parents or just had a horrible experience. I mean, I've had hard times. I had a pretty horrible um, aspect to my mission experience, but um, – but the fact that I credit the church with just being a huge blessing to me and my family is the second main reason. 
the third thing I'll just say is that I've lived most of my life outside the church. I, I grew up in Texas the whole time, you know, uh, in, in the church. And then after BYU, uh, I lived in Dallas, DC, Chicago, and Seattle for 12 years before I ever moved back to Logan. And even then, when I was in an increasingly bitter stage, uh, about the church, I still loved it. So, um, no, I, I could easily have checked out of the church here. My family was expecting it. All my family knew that I was disaffected. Um, I would never hit it from anybody. In fact, the opposite. I was in everybody's face about it. My whole community knew I was disaffected. The local, you know, Logan newspaper did a full page article on Mormon stories. I was on Good Morning America. Um, and like I said, we went inactive for a year and, um, told everybody and, and still was warmly treated in the community and, uh, and was, was warmly treated by my family. So we returned for one reason. And that's because the light, the spiritual light went dim the longer we stayed away and the farther the distance we got from the church, not just for me, but for my wife and for my children. And the moment that we returned to full activity, the light bulb went back on spiritually, and it's been shining bright ever since. And that is why I'm I'm in the church. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you coming from the, the other side, sort of. Um, you know, I, myself, I did a lot of the study. I did a lot of people. But ultimately, for my wife and I, it wasn't the history that that um, led us out of the church. It was the fact that it wasn't as spiritually fulfilling for us, and we found our peace and our place outside, like many others do. But I fully acknowledge that there's many, many, many people who find that inside the church, and for them, I say, great. If that's where your spiritual home is, if that's where things are, and, and you can work through those details, you understand it, you're going into the faith with open eyes— then, 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 you know, I applaud you and your ilk. And I'll just return that and say that I know that for many people, the church is just boring and tedious and provincial. And I used to feel that way. And if anybody leaves Mormonism and trades up in terms of spirituality and enlightenment, I, I, um, applaud them. And I, uh, I regret that at times I've characterized those who have left the church as sort of, by and large, becoming sad, uh, hedonistic, you know, sort of uh, uh, castaways, because um, I never really meant to characterize it that way, but sometimes that's how what I wrote came across. And I think that if you can become more spiritual and, and, and more Christ-like, I'll just say Christ-like, but I mean just good by leaving the church, then follow that. Well, we are, we are sad and hedonistic, but we like it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, now there's an interesting kind of, um, obviously you filled a, filled a niche there with the number of people who've contacted, the number of downloads you have. You know, frankly, a lot of the, the, um, content that the church puts out is quite bland and not very fulfilling. So there's a lot of people who who went to you to kind of fill that gap as they start leaving the church and say, what do I, or, or start questioning the church, start, what do I cling to now? Why do you think that gap exists? 
Oh, well, um, you know, I wrote about this in my essay, um, How to Stay in the Church After Becoming Disaffected, and there's a section in there about understanding the dilemma of the brethren. And um, I, I, you know, I've thought about this enough and spoken with enough people to to sort of put together this sort of scenario. If you think about the general authority of the church and specifically the prophets and, and you know, the apostles, um, number one, they are true believers. I, I, I'm convinced of this. I, I'm not one that buys into this notion that they're wizards behind the curtain trying to prop up something that they know is, is a fraud. I, 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 I have a lot of reason to believe and, and even personal um, interactions that confirm, satisfy my belief that, th- that these men, number one, first and foremost, are sincere believers in the, in the capital T truthfulness of the church. I, I agree Second, with you, by the way. I think, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Secondly, um, I think that, uh, I think that the, the brethren, um, the brethren, uh, feel tortured and I actually know that at least some of them feel very tortured about, um, paradox between, um, protecting and defending the institution of the church, which they see as their, probably one of their primary responsibilities. They've inherited this church for better or for worse. There's a lot of complexity. There are a lot of prior statements that, that they can't change because they inherited their position in the church and, and, and all the baggage that comes with it. They can't go back and tell Brigham not to say the things he said or tell Joseph not to do some of the things he did. They, but they, but they, they inha- could apologize for it, though, couldn't they, John? Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, so, so I feel like they, they start as, as feeling like they're stewards of the church and that in spite of the baggage that they've inherited, it's their goal to keep it strong. Their goal is to keep the church strong and healthy because, um, because what point if the church unravels? Um, I, I think that that if I were them, that would be one of my primary concerns in parallel with the second concern, which is reaching out to the one. And I absolutely know that the brethren reach out to the one um, continuously. I personally have had two interactions with high-level members of the church in very personal, direct, meaningful ways. They have personally reached out to me um, during moments of, of crisis in my life. And, and I know that whether it's homosexuals or feminists or intellectuals, you know, the three great threats to, the, to Mormonism <laughs> or um, whoever, that they don't just cavalierly disregard the plight of these people. They, they feel this pain as much as, as almost anyone could because not only are they good men who care about the one and they believe the scriptures enough to heed Christ's admonition about seeking after the one, um, but, but they also spend so much time with these people and a huge percentage of their time is talking one-on-one with these people that, that they um, feel it and they live it every day. So they're torn between caring about the one 
and wanting to preserve and strengthen the church. And, and so back when I was in my disaffected days, I kept saying, why don't they just come out and apologize? Why don't they just come out and publish all the CD Mormon history, take, take, um, you know, take responsibility for it, uh, give women the priesthood, uh, you know, denounce the Book of Mormon as, as not historical and the Book of Abraham too. And why don't they just own up to all these things that, uh, we think are a disaster and, and then, um, everything will be, you know, bluebirds and lollipops and rainbows. But, um, you have to realize that maturity is defined for me as navigating paradox. And to do what I just suggested would be, and we have the reorganized church and much of Protestant Christianity as examples of how that type of approach can lead to a weakening of the institution. So, John, I, I agree with you, but I want to I want to interrupt you really quickly and ask you a question. Um, any one of those uh, steps would be a major change in communication, PR, policy, doctrine, call it what you way you will. But I think there would be some opportunities for them to change and take some baby steps along that way. Um, the church is always pushing out, um, you know, having such and such um, letter read in sacrament meeting. What if they were just to send out a letter and say, please have all ward librarians remove all um, pictures of Joseph translating the uh, from the gold plates behind a, um, a sheet removed from your library and please remove references to this. We want to we want to accurately describe the translation process from now on in all official documentation. And that's now that's just an example of what I think would be a baby step, but it would be a, a really good um, uh, step in the in the way to say, you know what, we, we're trying to do what we can. We aren't going to come out and say the Book of Mormon is incorrect, but we're at least going to correct some of the, the misconceptions of things that, uh, that could affect. The finances would be another good example. Okay, so let's, let's turn, turn the table just a second if you'll allow me, and I just want to put you guys through an exercise. Can you guys name any of the baby steps that the church has taken in the past 20 years? towards this more enlightened, open, honest approach. I'll, I, I can name 10 off the top of my head, but I, I would love to hear if you guys can acknowledge any of these before I have to, to, to list them. I think President Hinckley has done a, did a great job of reaching out to our neighbors, not to, um, of trying to, to have more of a conciliatory tone towards um, members of other faiths. I think he did a good job. That would be one that I would say would be a, a baby step. I would, right. off, I would offer up uh, Elder Jensen and the things they're doing in the church history department shows a turnaround from the sort of dark ages of the 80s. Okay. Anything else? I I think the uh, obviously is a little bit longer than what you're saying, but the blacks and the priests didn't. Um, that was huge. And also recently, when President Hinckley was still alive, when he kind of denounced racism, I think that was a good step. Uh, exactly. And I'll just add: How about the fact that we've gone from a shock aversion therapy in the '70s with homosexuals to now uh, the position that we shouldn't judge what caused their homosexuality. We shouldn't judge them for being gay. It's likely not something that can, can be fixed. 
Um, and, um, you know, the, the church's position on homosexuality relative to its position in the 70s is, I think, a giant leap. I think the, the semi-apology that the church made over Mountain Meadows was, uh, was definitely a good step forward. I think the fact that the church would, would not only sell but majorly promote Rough Stone Rolling, Deseret Book, I just can't, I couldn't believe walking into Deseret Book and seeing this mountain of Rough Stone Rolling books being put front and center, wherein pretty much everything that Fawn Brody alleged is confirmed in, in that book. Uh, without the psychological sort of uh, interpretations, um, uh, the 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 way that they've changed the the temple ceremony to take out a lot of the barbaric, nastified things that that used to be in there, um, uh, the the changing of the of the forward to the Book of Mormon, uh, the the Joseph Smith Papers project, the fact that. Um, the fact uh, that they're no longer calling the Lamanite generation at BYU the Lamanite generation. I mean, and that's just off the top of my head. I could probably uh, – the fact that the fact that John DeLynn has not been excommunicated yet. <laughs> hey, no, hey, nor John, do you think – how many of those things that we talked about in the last, in the last minute or two are uh, things that they were um, – it wasn't their choice to talk about some of these. I mean, the DNA thing and taking out the and changing the the header to the Book of Mormon. I didn't get the feeling like that was was their choice, and it was actually only in the Doubleday version of the Book of Mormon it was changed. I mean, the church publication still mentions that, if I if I understand my facts right. And some of these things, I think they had to tip. I think they had their hand tipped, and then other things. I agree. I think they have. It has come out in their choices. Uh, I think the temple ceremony changes maybe, and I don't, this is just guessing. You may know better. I, I think those are probably the result of lawsuits, weren't they? It wasn't the fact that that we were that we did that or the church did that proactively. They probably did a lot of these things reactively. Well, um, you know, I guess I've uh, I guess I've lived and experienced enough to realize that there is no such thing as a single motivation for any act. Um, I totally acknowledge that that pressures and science, um, that pressures and science and just reality can can definitely be important factors in forcing power's hand to change. I think Martin Luther King and his journey taught us that power almost nev- never never um, relinquishes itself without pressure. But I think it would also be unfair and inaccurate to to simply take the the purely cynical um, perspective that that they did it for for purely um, self interested or you know reasons out of compulsion, I think that I think that re- depending on the change, my guess is there was a change of heart and uh, in many instances a sincere regret for how we treated at BYU or how we've talked about blacks or, um, you know, how, how sort of the, the teachings about Lamanites have, have led to sort of racist views and, and et cetera, et cetera. I think that the church is probably remorseful about how they, how they handle the September 6th. And I, my guess is they probably realized pretty quickly that excommunicating people probably was counterproductive 
and um, in many ways sad. So yeah, I think that 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 in some ways pressure uh, was was significant, but you know, organizations can also be obstinate, and in spite of pressure, they can still choose to not um, to not change and try and make progress. And so, I guess you know that's I I tend to give the church the benefit of the doubt, but. I uh, I applaud the church for for the the steps forward, and um, I also, I also yeah. think that uh, the release of that new uh, Mount Middle Massacre book by Richard Turley and Glenn Leonard and and Walker I think that was a big step forward too, although you know Mount Middle Massacre is kind of a big touchy feely subject for me I think I certainly would have liked uh, just a downright apology instead of express profound regret. Um, I don't know. I maybe I'm asking too much. I but I I would I would most certainly like just a genuine apology. And I think that most people, even when it comes to racism, the the massacre, or even a lot of things, I think they just want a sincere apology from from a general authority. And and why why they aren't actually doing that is a really good question. I don't know. Well, it's it's um yeah I I totally empathize with that. Point of view. I think that if I if I had to look at it from their point of view, my guess is the primary reason they don't do that is is legal. I think that they don't want to open themselves up to massive lawsuits that that could drain the coffers of the church from from descendants of the of the Fancher party or whatever they were called. I know that may sound horrible to people that a that a church would would care about things such as you know finances and, and legal stuff, but my guess is that that's just a reality and they don't want to open themselves up to that. But it's also, you know, the truth is, how do you apologize for something a bunch of other people did a hundred and whatever years ago? I mean, it, it wasn't like the church issued official church sort of directives. It was more Brigham Young sort of stoking an environment through his speeches and then a bunch of people sort of acting you know, act ways that they thought was right. And yeah, they were all members, but, you know, can we really say it was a, it was the church that, that did that? Well, I, I think I have a response to that. And, you know, um, I, I agree with your, your premise, John, but I, there's a, there's a limit to it for me. Part of the reason is that the church is very sophisticated in its communication and in everything it does. And if we take a doctrine, let's take, for example, something like birth control, where the church was unambiguously um, opposed to birth control you know, many, many statements. They, you know, they said that over and over again, that it was sinful. And then what they do is they move it into a position where it becomes ambiguous. Same thing with, say, the, the racist doctrines behind the blacks and the priesthood, the teachings about Cain and the stuff that's in the Pearl Great Price. They don't repudiate that stuff. They just move it into a, a realm of ambiguousness where you could go either way. Um, and the problem I have with that is it encourages a lot of fundamentalist thinkers to still stay on those old platforms and still believe those things are right. And, and my, my contention about the church is they're very sophisticated. They know what they're doing, and they're doing that on purpose. So I agree the church is making motion in the right direction, but they, they're, they're very craftily moving to a position where they don't have to repudiate the old stuff, but can have more liberal people or, or um, interpret it in their own way. So they're, they're kind of trying to have their cake and eat it too. And for that, I, I think they're, they're guilty of that. But I do acknowledge that they're moving in the right direction. 
Yeah, and I'll just respond and say that uh, the, the idealistic part of me would like that as well, that every time the church acknowledges a change in direction, that they would put out a general conference memo um, and, and alert everybody to it. On the flip side, the church is run by men. It's a corporation, and it it is run by a lot of the same philosophies that that run the federal government and major corporations. And um, I think that what it's trying to do and what it's always tried to do is preserve people's respect for the prophetic mantle. I think they see themselves as prophets, seers, and revelators, even if flawed. And I think that they don't want to draw attention to the fact that sometimes things um, lead people in the wrong directions by, by whenever there's a mistake calling attention to it. I think that they have made a calculation that they'll be able to keep the most people in the church and keep the church the strongest by instead of doing big mea culpas and, you know, sort of 30 lash apologies each time they make a misstep, that they'll just quietly try to turn in more positive directions whenever they can and not draw attention to it. And I think that in a purely idealistic sense, uh, what, what you call for would be probably the highest form of integrity. But um, it's just not the way organizations uh, usually operate, especially legal ones. But I know there's exceptions. And I know that the idealistic part of me would not want to see, quote, Christ Church act in a legalistic uh, sort of bureaucratic way. But no, that's just the decisions they've made. I can see why they've made the decisions. Uh, my heart wishes that there could be more candor. Um, but I guess I understand uh, the decision they've made and, and we'll see whether it comes back to, to Hanum or bite him, you know, it's clearly, there's clearly a case that this approach is coming back to, to bite or haunt the church. Okay, John, to to move back to your Mormon stories for a minute, I, I wanted to ask you a question. During your experience, I mean, how long did it go? Go like two years, three years? Say it again, I'm podcast? sorry. For your podcast, when you were doing your podcast, how long did that, did from beginning to end, was it about yeah. two years, three years? Yeah, something like two or three years. I kind of stopped and started a lot in between. So you were obviously kind of... <laughs> restructuring your own beliefs and trying to slot where you can still be um, comfortable with the church. Were any of your uh, historical problems or questions or doubts ever resolved by talking to some of these people that you interviewed? Um, let's see. Um, no. Not really. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I mean... I mean, I still, I'm still sad about how blacks are treated. I'm still sad about how gays are treated. I'm still sad about, you know, women uh, and and sort of. Not, I'm not saying that women should have the priesthood. And I'm not saying women are treated horribly, but you know, when I think about what women were able to do in the 1800s in terms of ordinances and, and what they're able to do now, I, you know, part of me feels like there's been a loss there. Um, uh, you know, it's not like I feel better about polygamy and, and feel good about it. Uh, so all the problem areas sort of remain problematic. Um, 
So in terms of, you know, feeling resolved about those, I, I don't think that I have. Um, but just, you know, I'm feeling better about, about my relationship with the church. And I feel like I now understand having, having gone through all those interviews and really tried to put myself in the position of the church. I feel like I can see things from their perspective now. And I feel like understanding is sort of a key to peace and love. And I feel like through it all, I've developed empathy and understanding for why they do the things they do, even though I don't always agree with it. What about, uh, well, I guess, I guess for me, you know, listening to you now and listening to some of your podcasts in the past, what exactly is your motivation to want to keep them in the church? If, if you're a cafeteria style, um, belief system that you have now, what exactly is your motivation to want to keep people in the church? Isn't it, isn't it okay if you just kind of hold a, hold up your sign and say, this works for me, but go around me if you'd like. And, you know, because obviously you said that during your path that you've probably made just as many friends as you have enemies <laughs> and getting snowballs thrown at you both sides. But why, what's the motivation to want to keep them in the church? Well, um, the truth is my motivation is to create spaces for pe- people to find health. If my only motivation were to keep people in the church, I probably would have uh, taken Mormon stories down and never put it back up. Um, <laughs> I, I, what I want people to do is to find health. And I used to think, I used to think that staying in the church was the only way to find health and true happiness. And I no longer believe that. I believe that some people will find greater health and happiness by leaving. And I believe that, that Mormon stories provides people with the information to become informed and, and to let them make that decision themselves. So in, in that respect, I'm proud of it because I do think that people should be, um, um, I do think that people should, should, once they want to be fully aware, they should have the chance to, to know everything and then make an informed decision. Um, uh, so my goal for people to find health and happiness, the reason why I started stayLDS.com was because I, I and I'm, I'm not going to back away from the fact that I've seen a lot of people leave the church and on the other end, find misery, divorce, depression, isolation, bitterness, and unhappiness. I'm not going to walk away from that. I'm not going to say that it's been the majority. I'm not going to say that it's been 20%. Maybe it just has only been 5% of those who have left the church, and those just happen to be a lot of the people who talk to me. I don't know what the ratio is. All I know is I know hundreds of people who fit that category. And what I what I believe is that other religions have a rich tradition of of having people of all types with within their membership and mormonism is relatively young in this regard and so because we're so young we're like the catholicism of the 1700s or the judaism of the of the 1700s where it was either in or out all or nothing or at least that's kind of the perception but um i don't believe you know there are some people for whom I fervently believe that whether it's because of their marriage or their heritage or their community or just their particular situation, that they 
would be best served by sticking around if they could find a way to do it in a healthy way. And I think that very few people have tried to carve out a space for them, not only trying to provide them with the vocabulary and the the philosophy to be able to conceptualize um, a pathway towards staying, but also to build enough tolerance um, within the general Mormon body such that these people aren't rejected as viruses or bacteria, you know, in the body religious. And so um, my my involvement in StayLDS.com isn't to make it so everybody stays. It's a supplement to Mormon stories simply to say for those who feel like they would be better off by finding a way to stay, here's a way to do it. But it's not my assertion that everyone should stay. Well, I, I agree with you on both counts. I, I know that, um, you know, I, I'm obviously non-traditional, but if there was a place for me, I'd probably keep going. But I don't think it's about me as much as it's about the church. And I don't think that the church has grown up enough to take those people with different point of views. That's one of the reasons I think your voice and those who help is so important, in part because the second issue you brought up, leaving the church, and rather than saying leaving the church, that, that disassociation from that the um, traditional fundamentalist view that most Mormons have is a very bloody process, and it, it it's very very difficult. And um, you know, like you, I've I've known lots of people going through it. it. It leaves the wreckage of lives and marriages and all that. And probably more than anything, that's why I've stayed involved in the communities that I do to do what I can to help people through it. And to me, if they find their place in the church, that's fine. If they find their place out of the church, but that transition is a difficult difficult place to be in. And whatever anybody can do to help, I think, is uh, worthwhile. So I want to explore that just a little bit, uh, combining something that John mentioned earlier and then um, combining something that, that you've said in, in a couple of your podcasts. A minute, a few minutes ago, you mentioned that, that uh, many of the brethren spend quite a bit of their time working with individual people. So, you know, Joe or Jane or somebody like that. Um, so I think that's wonderful that they're doing one-on-one um, -on -one work with people. But in the concept of the 99 and the 1, I don't think that there seems to be a lot of, of sense of doing anything about the 1 as a group. So if you take, you know, a bunch of people named Joe or Jane and that all of them have the same issue. I don't see the church reaching out to that them as a group. And I wanted to combine that with one of the things that you'd mentioned, um, and I think the Sunstone um, Symposium podcast that you have, I can't remember what it's titled. Basically, you're encouraging people to stay in the church to contribute, to to help and make it a better place. And I'm paraphrasing what you're what your message was, but you basically were encouraging um, those of us who have a lot of this knowledge to help the people who are coming up to their crises now. So how do we combine and, and how do you, how do we as a group of people reach out when we are not given a, a, a tool to use sanctioned by the church to help the one as a group? There, there's just nothing there. We, we, Sunstone's discouraged. Um, group meetings are discouraged. Um, dissenting votes, votes or dissenting points of view are labeled as apostate. Um, how do you, how do you find these, and how do you um, become a resource to other people? Well, this is a this is a great question. Um, 
I won't. Uh, I'll just challenge one little assertion you made about dissenting voices being discouraged. Um, Elder Worthlin gave a talk before his death, and I don't even remember the name of the talk, but um, it was an amazing talk that basically said the church is more like a symphony where we need lots of voices. And, um, you know, it seemed to be a talk that was calling out and encouraging an acceptance of differences and variation within the church. But I will totally agree that culturally um, dissent is, is discouraged and sometimes officially and maybe oftentimes officially still dissent is discouraged. So I feel the pain of this question and it speaks to the motivation for why I've been doing what I've been doing for the past four years. Um, if, if, if you wanted me to try and answer why the brethren don't do something officially about these problems, uh, to reach out to the, um, to the disaffected members in mass, I'll just give you my opinion. My opinion is it's because they don't have the answers. I think that if you sat them down and said, uh, help me help solve the DNA problem for me, help me believe in the Book of Mormon, a Book of Abraham based on the papyra, explain to me, uh, polyandry, please help me feel better about it. I don't think they would have an answer. Um, I know that this uh, is is a problem because they not only claim, but I believe they believe themselves to be prophet seers leaders. But I don't think anyone who has studied what it means to be a prophet is scripturally, you know, would acknowledge that rarely does prophet seer and revelator mean a you're perfect or b that you have a direct line of communication with God. Um, in the scriptures, especially in the Bible, prophets uh, are often screw ups. Um, they're often sort of goofs, and um, and I think they recognize their own limitations and fallibilities better than anyone else. And so the first reason why they don't come up with a coordinated curriculum is because I don't think they have the answers. Um, I think that the, the, they do have one answer, um, but it's the Sunday school answer. I think they sincerely believe that even the most disaffected among us likely had spiritual um inspiration at some point during our journey and and would have access to more spiritual uh, inspiration and enlightenment if we would continue to follow and live the principles of the gospel so i think that they're doing the best they feel they can in terms of administering to the one by saying pray live the commandments read the scriptures because i think that they honestly believe that there is no intellectual resolution to these problems and that the only resolution is a spiritual one and and since they're doing all they can to continue encouraging spiritual uh enlightenment i think that's the best that they feel that they can do now in parallel to that um in parallel to that i think that uh it's a lot safer for them to let these types of solutions bubble up and um You'll notice that there haven't been many high-profile excommunications uh, since, you know, Margaret Toscano in like 1995 or whenever she excommunicated. Uh, they didn't excommunicate Grant Palmer. Uh, they they didn't excommunicate Thomas Murphy. I know that some of that was because of PR, but but um, the church is letting a thousand flowers bloom, and I think they're hoping that the members can take on this burden and responsibility of trying to work through these issues slowly and um, in a way that doesn't 
too quickly expose people to the problems. And I think, I'm guessing that their hope is, is that through the bloggernacle, through the apologetic stuff, and through the books that get published now through Deseret Books, that slowly there'll be a cultural shift towards more awareness and openness and even tolerance, but that it won't come at the expense of members who probably aren't ready to, to be talking about this stuff through some type of official Sunday school for the disaffected. You come up with any um, suggestions about what um, people, individuals can do to help move this forward? Well, um, you know, I've tried a lot of things that have and haven't worked. I've tried to bring stuff like this up in Elders Quorum and, and Relief Society or, or Sunday School. That almost always backfires. I've tried to <laughs> pull members aside and inform them individually about corrections or errors or whatever. And that hasn't worked. I've tried to reach out to a lot of disaffected people. And my guess is that my success rate at keeping them in the church is, is relatively low. Um, uh, so I don't have any good answers other than helping people feel like they're not alone is usually very helpful. Um, helping encourage people to go slowly is usually very helpful trying to uh, administer to the believing family members of someone who's disaffected so as to save the marriage has proved helpful. I'd much rather see a couple stay together and leave the church together than split up a family with one staying a believer and one staying a disbeliever. So, um, you know, th that's helpful. I think the bloggernacle and, and the books being published are slowly informing the membership but I think this is a really tough nut to crack, and I think the church's vitality in the future in some ways hangs in the balance because, you know, uh, growth in the church in the U.S. is probably slowing. I don't think that Google is helping the missionary effort necessarily. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's leading to a lot of – I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing thousands and thousands of people leave the church every year still over these issues. So I think that the way the church – uh, deals with these issues in the future is a tricky one. I will say that I think the biggest thing the church has to do is figure out how to become relevant and exciting and spiritually meaningful to the lives of its members. That's probably the best thing that it could do. If it could find a way to recapture the spirit that, that I experienced in the 70s of roadshows and members saving their money to build the church and the sense of community and, and of love and, and of ownership of the church and um, all the extracurricular activities that, that made people feel part of something really beautiful. I think the extent to which the church can recapture that and decorrelate and de-sterilize might be an important um, way, but I can't guarantee that that would, would help. But it seems like that might be their best bet. Great. John, you've been as articulate as usual. I think the, you're a great asset to the church, and if they had more doing what you're doing, I think their, their uh, future would be brighter. So, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Well. And, and John, I, from me personally, I, I really appreciate what you've done, and sincerely and genuinely, I appreciate what you've done. I know you put your neck out there <laughs> big time. But uh, you've been you've been a big help to me personally, so I I wanted to thank you for that. Oh well, thanks guys, and uh, it's an honor to talk to you guys, and I, I really appreciate what you guys are doing, and 
And uh, I, I would love to see more joy and less pain and more health. And somehow I think we're all going to be part of that uh, part of that outcome. So thanks for doing your part too. Great. That's a worthy goal. So you can see more of John's work at his current projects, dlds.com. You can check out the original podcast on mormonstories.org. And uh, John, are you still involved with uh, Mormon Matters? Uh, I still own it, um, and I occasionally contribute, but that's run by a lot of good people. Um, So yes and no. (laughs) Okay, so you can check out that over there. This discussion continues at mormonexpression.com. Check out our blog there. You can also call us at 801-906-6722, or you can email us your comments at mail at mormonexpression.com. Our music is provided by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com.